HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network, broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. You're listening to Food Without Borders, a show about food, culture, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you are listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today, I am in studio with Rabbi Debbie Prinz. She lectures about chocolate and religion around the world. She is the author of On the Chocolate Trail, a delicious adventure connecting Jews, religion, history, travel, rituals, and recipes to the magic of cacao. Also in studio with me is Warren Klein. He has been the curator of the Herbert and Eileen Bernard Museum of Judaica at Temple Emmanuel since 2013. His exhibitions have included graphic posters, contemporary Jewish wedding gowns, gold in my ear, and currently Semite Sweet on Jews and Chocolate, the first ever exhibition about Jews and chocolate, which just so happens to be based on Rabbi Prinz's book, On the Chocolate Trail. So welcome, Rabbi Prinz, and welcome, Warren. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank well, you. You're very welcome. Um, so this episode is a little different than the type of shows that I normally do. But um, Rabbi Prinz, you sent me a really good pitch <laughs> about how chocolate is an immigrant food and how refugees, uh, refugee Jews are responsible for kind of disseminating chocolate into the Western world. And I was very intrigued. So invited you to come on. Um, so first, I'd love to hear a little bit about how, just besides the obvious why you like chocolate, but how you got, because, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> most people like chocolate, but how you got into chocolate seriously and it sort of became your your life's work and then how did you start making connections between chocolate and religion thanks for the question sari um <laughs> well there's more where that came from <laughs> <laughs> uh 
So it, the longer story is that um, my husband and I were planning a sabbatical trip from my congregational work in San Diego, California, and we were to rent a VW van in Amsterdam in March of 2006 and travel south and visit Jewish communities um, and from week to week, and it was going to be a, a trip through several countries in Europe, and uh, we were in a conversation about whether we should stop in Paris or not. He had been there. I had not been there. It was going to be cold. He didn't want to go. I wanted to go. We were, you know, in a, in a discussion about it. Some people would call it an argument. And um, I happened... <laughs> it was a, a Jewish discussion. Yes, it was one of those back and forths. And I happened to be listening to uh, another radio station uh, one morning, actually Valentine's Day, uh, before I went to my office and exercising at the same time as I was listening to this report on Valentine's Day over the radio about chocolate in Paris. And I'm uh, sweating and salivating and sweating, sweating and <laughs> salivating listening to the story, excited to hear about the beautiful chocolate that was being described by David Leibovitz, food writer, um, in this report. And later that night when Mark and I connected, I so do you know, Mark, do you know about chocolate in Paris? He said, really? There's chocolate in Paris? I'll reroute the trip. So Wait, he, he didn't rerouted know that? the trip. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really know that either at that point. And he rerouted the trip, and we spent a few days in Paris. And I took my map of Paris, and I identified all the chocolate stores that were on the list and the cultural sites that we wanted to visit, matched them up so we could expedite our time and, and get to everything we wanted to see. And we, we happened to go into a chocolate store that was not on the list, L'Atelier du Chocolat de Bayonne, where I happened to pick up their company literature, and I happened to be able to read in their high school French that it said that Jews brought chocolate making to France. And having been a congregational rabbi for about 30 years at that point, and having studied at seminary and Jewish studies classes in college and never heard that story that Jews brought chocolate making to France, I had to reread it again. Ooh la la, how could this be that I didn't know this? Yeah. And... Um, and that started off the research and the investigation into Jews and chocolate, Quakers and chocolate, Catholics and chocolate. Right. Um, but your work primarily is, is really focused on the Jewish connection. The, the show is focused on, the exhibit at the Bernard Museum is focused on Jews and chocolate, Semite sweet, on Jews and chocolate, yes. Um, we do try to give a little background about chocolate making and what uh, information about chocolate in general, but we're really focused in that story, um, in that exhibit, on objects and archival materials maps and, and memorabilia that connect to the Jewish story of Jewish refugees and immigrants who were involved in the chocolate business. Yeah. Um, and before we get into that, I'm just curious, how, how serious were you about chocolate just as like a, a chocolate lover, you know, before you started really studying it as, a, as well, part of your profession? I always had a sweet tooth. Mm -hmm. My parents used to hide the sweets in our house on the top shelf, and I learned very quickly how to climb the shelves to find those sweet things. It wasn't specifically chocolate, however, until that particular trip and that moment in France when I started to learn about the connections, and I began to explore chocolate in a more serious way so that today, if I'm not tasting chocolate every day. I'm not doing my job. <laughs> what is that? It's, it's a, a tough job, job, but someone's got to do it. Yeah, yeah. It, is, it is so much fun to read your book because it starts off talking about that particular trip when you were in France and how you, you know, would find out about a new ch chocolate exhibition and kind of like pull off the road and, and you know, rejigger your route so you could just eat more and more and more right. chocolate. I, yeah. I discovered through the research for the book and, and looking at these stories 
um, on the chocolate trail that um, I have this syndrome, self-diagnosed, adult onset, Chocodar, my radar for chocolate experiences. <laughs> and I describe that in the book, too. And a lot of the stories in the book are really the result of this weird um, set of serendipitous experiences that I've had related to chocolate. It sounds like you've found your life's work. I mean, it's it, meant to be. It, it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when you wrote me and you said, you know, chocolate is a migrant food and you started talking about the connection between refugee Jews and chocolate, I also was very surprised to hear that as you were surprised when you were in Bayonne. And um, just just tell us how how that is, how that came to be. Sure. First of all, chocolate itself is a migrant food. So maybe it was first domesticated in Ecuador, traveled to Mexico, Guatemala. um, And from there, it's traveled around the world. So people have transplanted it because of the enjoyment of chocolate from place to place. And now it grows in surprising places like Vietnam and Hawaii and Thailand and um, Indonesia, certainly the bulk of it coming from West Africa at this point. So just to begin with, uh, chocolate is a migrant food. And then um, the first European contact of it was through people who were traveling, Columbus and and other explorers later on. And then the Spanish brought it back to Europe initially. And Jews had contact with um, chocolate through their experiences in Spain and Portugal, and then were exiled from Spain and Portugal. And... um, and traveled along uh, mercantile routes. And um, in many places, there's a huge coincidence between chocolate specialists and the Jewish people, the Sephardim or the descendants of, or relatives of those people who were exiled from Spain. So um, the stories of Jews... And that would be the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition mm-hmm. and the expulsion from Spain. Um, and the um, several of the story, the early stories of Jews and chocolate are about drinking chocolate, of course, and um, they relate to those people from Spain. So people who went to Newport, Rhode Island, Jews who went to Newport, Rhode Island, New York City, um, New Spain, um, or or Mexico, um, Bayonne, France, London, Amsterdam. There are these interesting stories related to um, pioneering chocolate experiences in those places. So when refugee Jews settled in Bayonne, is that the first? And then there's, I guess, you know, historical documents showing that there was chocolate. Um, Is that the first record of of chocolate in France? So, I mean, are Jews the first, uh, I guess, group of people to introduce chocolate to France? So that's what they say. In France, a lot of chocolate makers and chocolate historians and Jewish historians attribute the first chocolate making to Jews who uh, were exiled from Spain, chose to travel relatively close by to the southwest of France, to Bayonne, France, as I have said, not Bayonne, New Jersey, Bayonne, France. (laughs) Um, So it was relatively easy for them to get there. The Inquisition was not as strong there. They still had to be somewhat secretive about their Jewish practice, but they brought according to these records and these opinions, brought chocolate making to France. So if you were to visit Bayonne, New Jersey, uh, <laughs> <laughs> see, I confused myself, yeah. Bayonne, France, um, 
you would see a number of chocolate makers there, and a lot of them, and, and they also have some museums there, chocolate museums there, they will identify Jews as having brought chocolate making to France. Hmm. It's their story. Do any of them still have those Spanish or Portuguese last names? Not that I know of, okay. but possibly. I did I'm not. Curious. That's, that's a, a good question. Get a lot. Yeah, that's yeah. a good question. Um, and after writing this book, and Warren, after curating the exhibit based on it, have you? Has there been any backlash? I mean, has anyone disputed that fact? Warren, did you hear anything? I have not heard anything yet. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the greatest last-minute finds that we had for the exhibition was a volume about the history of the Jews of Bayonne that Debbie came across at the Hebrew Union College Library in Cincinnati. And we opened it, chapter eight, right away, less chocolatiers, pardon my bad pronunciation. Um, but having that on display, having that record and the account of the Jewish community in Bayonne, we have other objects on display as well that I, I think that that's a strong argument. So we haven't had any bash. We have historical so. record. Whether it's disputed or not, I really don't know. Yeah. Um, and there's probably limited amount of evidence one way or the other. But what's interesting about this is that this is the story that people tell mm-hmm. in addition to that historical reference and, and probably others as well. Um, so it's interesting that that becomes part of the chocolate tradition of France so that even when they, when the French Postal Service issued a, a plate block of stamps, they highlight Bayonne, and in Bayonne, people highlight um, Jews. Wow. I wonder, um, have you been able to get in touch with David Leibovitz about it? I have, and he's really interested in his work. Um, I did give him a copy of the book in person when he was in New York, which was very exciting for me. And I know that he continues to certainly publish and write um, lots of books about French food and, and other things. Yeah, so I, I'm glad that he has a copy of the book. But he didn't comment on that specifically yet. I don't yet, think so. it's exactly his area. It's not. It's yeah. not. I yeah. just, you know, yeah. as someone who, yeah. you know, is so prominent and writes about pastry yeah. and chocolate in France and is also a Jew, I would just be curious to hear, <laughs> you know, what his opinion would be. Not opinion, but what his reaction right, would be. Exactly. I, guess, I, I was say. interested too. Yeah. Um, so I think you have some specific stories that do come up in the in the exhibit, but about specific refugee families who are able to pursue chocolate making as a trade, or um, they're just really kind of like lovely. You know, you, you mentioned when I saw the exhibit that so often like these kind of resettlement stories, and especially specifically like Jewish history, tend to be kind of drenched in tragedy, but these are really happy stories. And so I'd love you to mention a few of those. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, and Warren, feel free to jump Absolutely. in. Um, I love the stories that relate to New York and um, Newport, um, partly because there's a lot of evidence for them. And these are really interesting families, both from a chocolate point of view in terms of their business and their trade and their making chocolate, and also from a Jewish perspective where um, these families are very philanthropic and they're very engaged in the Jewish community and very engaged also in the secular community. So they're leaders all the way around um, in their communities. So one family, for instance, is the Gomez family in New York City. Uh, five uh, individuals in two generations of the family were involved in the chocolate business in some way. They were very involved in creating the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue, uh, very philanthropic. They helped fund the Trinity Church steeple when it was burned down. There were family members who were translators at the state assembly. They were just very, very 
connected to the New York community and Jewish community, and they were in the chocolate business. One of those members of the family, um, Rebecca Gomez, um, is probably one of two handfuls of women who were selling chocolate in the colonial period and the only woman that I was able to discover who was also making chocolate. And we have newspaper advertisements, in fact, one on exhibit at the Bernard Museum um, from a New York newspaper advertising her chocolate free from sediment, pure, good, uh, made by her um, on Nassau Street. Yeah, and she was literally selling out of her home, we think, right? On Nassau possibly, Street. Yeah. And, we, and we found no fewer than about a dozen of these advertisements that she was taking out, selling other things that a woman of her time would have sold, teas, papers, other goods. Um, but, I mean, just amazing. I mean, she was trying to push her chocolate. Right, and she was also pushing quality chocolate. Quality, Quality yeah. for that period of time. Keep in mind, this chocolate was ground by hand, generally speaking, and um, and was not of the texture that we would uh, expect from chocolate, eating chocolate today. They were using it for drinking chocolate. And so um, she was advertising the quality of her chocolate, which is interesting. And so that's the Gomez family in New York City. And then there's the Lopez, Aaron Lopez story in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, while the Gomez family had come to New York, probably from Spain through Bayonne, possibly, Bayonne, France, um, Aaron Lopez came to Newport, Rhode Island from Portugal, and his name in Portugal was Duarte. He left intending to come to um, America, to the colonies, in order to be able to practice his Judaism publicly rather than having to hide his Judaism and, and practice secretly. So um, he went to Newport because he had family there. He um, uh, developed a, a trading business. He at one point became the richest um, taxpayer in, or the highest taxpayer in, in Newport, was the richest man there, very, very successful trader and merchant. And he had a chocolate business where he was having people grind chocolate for him. In addition to that, um, we have records on display from the Newport Historical Society, original um, text passages from his account books that show that when he was giving charity to local indigent Jews, he was including in those foodstuffs chocolate balls or gifts of chocolate so that these people would have um, some chocolate. Now, that's not because chocolate was a luxury item in those days. It was not a luxury item. It was pretty much a regular food stuff, and people were drinking chocolate for breakfast and for supper, and it was relatively inexpensive in those days. And we also have a, connect, have a text that connects um, chocolate to Pesach, to Passover, the, the festival of Passover, probably the first text I was able to find um, related to chocolate and Passover, which we, a lot of us, think of as... You know, what else is there going to be for dessert at Passover except for chocolate? Macaroons. <laughs> chocolate covered. <laughs> well, what, I love, what I love about the Passover connection, too, is not only as you know, we as 21st century Jews think about those chocolate desserts, but it also accounts for the times at which those Sephardic Jews or immigrants were eating chocolate, whether it was right. at different holidays or possibly even breaking the fast by drinking chocolate. Um, it just kind of holds into those different types of customs that developed over the past couple hundred years. That's funny. It's like bagels are the new chocolate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you can just imagine Aaron Lopez dipping his matzah into his chocolate yeah, beverage. Yeah, I was thinking that <laughs> Could be good. Pretty I think so. Pretty revolutionary at the time. Yeah. 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 Um, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk more with Warren to hear about the exhibit. Go in 
Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal. Bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I am in studio today with Rabbi Debbie Prinz, who uh, wrote a very delicious and enjoyable book called On the Chocolate Trail, and also Warren Klein, who's the curator of the Bernard Museum of Judaica, and he put together uh, a really fascinating exhibit about Jews and chocolate based on Rabbi Debbie Prinz's work. So, Warren, I would love to hear about... Um, how you tackled this exhibit and just the, the process of finding these extremely rare objects that have now come together to Absolutely. put the story together. Yeah, it is a little <laughs> bit unusual. Um, so I worked very closely with Debbie. We put on the exhibition together. It is all based on her research, as you said. And I met Debbie, I think, almost about two years ago right now through my boss. He was in Israel and happened to see a copy of her book on someone's desk. And the person said, you got to get in touch with her. She's in New York. And we met. And I first heard about, we were thinking about maybe just doing an event about her book and about chocolate. And the more I read and the more we talked and presented different historical artifacts, archival material, just the more interested I became. And I started looking for things myself and how can we highlight some of these different stories so that was really fun, and we were able to, it was really a challenge. Um, you know, we're a small museum, but out of every exhibition we've done, this was the most loans that we had, so we really had to look f through um, our network of other museums and institutions and historical societies, as well as private individuals, too. Can you speak to some of the more... Um hard, hard, sure. rare finds and, and good gets you, you yeah. managed to come back. So one thing I'm very proud of is last summer I was in Toronto and there is a wonderful uh, Judaica museum at a conservative synagogue uh, called Beth Sedek. And I'm just walking to the museum. It's just kind of been on my list of, I always wanted to check it out. And to highlight, you know, we had very little that we had to include in the exhibition about that kind of, you know, by own connection. And I happened to come across the collection they had of Jewish marriage contracts, Ketubot. And I asked the curator, I said, you know, we're doing this exhibition about Jews and chocolate. Biome plays an important role and, you know, could we borrow it? And it really was one of only about two or three that I knew of that were in public collections. So that was a great score just to sh showcase and highlight the kind of wealth and the prominence of the Jewish community there. 
um, a little behind the scenes story about something we didn't get that I wish we did <laughs> was a, a kind of flash forward to the 20th century. And we'll talk a little bit about Barton's uh, here in New York. Uh, they had these wonderful mid-century modern designed stores. And the Brooklyn Museum actually has a lamp that was designed by Victor Gruen in their decorative arts collection. And we weren't able to obtain it for the exhibition. But we had some other great things, too. I would say, um, first of all, it's, it was great to work with Warren. He's professional. He's creative. He loved the idea of doing a food show. It was really fun to do that. And um, one of the great finds was the Leo Beck Institute. Yes, absolutely. Owns chocolate cups that were given to Albert Einstein and his sister Maya when they were children that um, Einstein chose to bring with him when he emigrated from um, Germany uh, to the States and um, they're on display in the exhibit, which is just so fun. And it just suggests to us the connection between genius and chocolate. Mm. (laughs) I have to say that I, I really, really enjoyed seeing that. And can you also talk about the cookbook that's in there? Oh, sure. Absolutely. That yeah, was that, so cool. that was another kind of fun yeah. find. Um, so, you know, we had this, we, we talked a little bit about Rebecca Gomez before. And, you know, it occurred to me, you know, she was really kind of the only woman that we were highlighting in this exhibition. And in the back of my head, I had remembered that I had seen the first American Jewish cookbook that was ever published. And it was by a woman named Esther Levy in Philadelphia in 1871. And it actually is an exceedingly rare book to come by. There's only one in New York City in a, private, in a public collection. So through um, a private collector that I know here in New York, we were able to borrow one. And, you know, it's just such a charming book because she's speaking about issues of keeping kosher and keeping a kosher home, but also speaking to different tonics to cure your illnesses. And of all the dessert recipes that she has in her book, three of them include chocolate. And, um, you know, when I open up a recipe book today, I think at least half of those dessert recipes are going to have be include chocolate, maybe yeah. even more. So, you know, that's talking to the availability of chocolate, maybe in the 19th century to the kind of everyday household cook, maybe in Philadelphia. Um, or maybe it just wasn't of the taste, too. People weren't used to tasting or cooking with it, too, at the time. Which is just such like an interesting trajectory to follow, because, Debbie, how you mentioned it wasn't initially a, a luxury item at all, and it was a very sort of everyday mm-hmm. food that you would have maybe for breakfast and then later on in the day as well. Well, it might speak to the transition from drinking chocolate to, to eating, eating chocolate. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, which, of course, the, the, this, the second room of the exhibit, the second gallery of the exhibit is devoted to eating chocolate for the most part, and that's where we get to the Barton story and the 20th century refugee stories. If you if you want to comment on that, that would be great, because yeah. I really did love seeing the transition from you know the historical context into the modern day. Yeah, and, and the, the second gallery really gave us an opportunity um, to be a little bit more whimsical and more fun. I mean, part of that was due to Barton's and their advertising and marketing, and it was very colorful and attractive to people. Um, and really the segue is, um, you know, starts off as a sad one and, you know, about um, Jewish stores and businesses that were confiscated um, by the Nazis, uh, specifically um, Stephen Klein, who eventually came um, to New York and started Barton's Bon Bonnier here in New York. It is really interesting to think of chocolate as a Jewish food, because that's not something that had ever occurred yeah, to me, me before. me either. Yeah, because it's, I mean, other than Hanukkah gelt, which are chocolate coins, that's the only holiday I can think of that really incorporates chocolate into the ritual and tradition. Um, but after seeing the exhibit, it really sort of flipped that notion for me. And maybe you can 
maybe you can argue for that, like how chocolate is a Jewish food in this sort of modern day era and and speak to how, um, you know, just the, the story, like the whole arc of the story, how Jews bringing it after the Spanish Inquisition over to France and the other places where they resettled has now evolved into, I don't know, like how, how is chocolate now like a, a Jewish food in the, in the modern day setting? Well, I think in the modern day setting, we probably all expect that there will be chocolate at Passover and we expect chocolate at Hanukkah. We love our chocolate babka, which I think there's one floating around here somewhere. <laughs> Not floating in my bag. <laughs> in your bag. <laughs> and um, so I think the palate, the Jewish palate, like the secular palate or the general palate, um, enjoys chocolate. Um, the ritual uses of chocolate um, go back to this, um, in New Spain to Mexico where um, Jews were secretly practicing their Judaism. The surrounding culture was very much a chocolate culture. Again, breakfasts could be a drinking chocolate, supper could be a drinking chocolate, and wine and grapes were not so readily available. So Jews were using chocolate for ritual purposes on Friday night for the blessing that's known as the Kiddush to welcome the Sabbath. Mm. Um, they were using chocolate to give gifts at meals of consolation where it's customary to have round foods and chocolate after having been ground by hand would be stored in balls before making it into hot chocolate so it was round and that would be given um, and Jews were also drinking chocolate before they started the fast for the Day of Atonement for Yom Kippur and at the end of the fast to break the fast of Yom Kippur. So there were ritual uses and ritual connections in those days for Jews. I, um, I think we maybe today more religiously just eat chocolate because we find it a spiritual, you know, a general spiritual experience. Yeah. <laughs> we we want to just do that every day. <laughs> um, well, why don't you both tell us where we can learn, read your book or find your book and then come visit the exhibit and how much longer it's on for. Sure. The, um, the book is available at Amazon and also at Jewish Lights Publishing. Um, and I'm delighted if you're going to take a look at it on the chocolate trail. Thank you. Sure. And the exhibition is at uh, Temple Emanuel, the Bernard Museum. It's uh, 1 East 65th Street. And the exhibition will be on view through Sunday, February 25th. And our hours are Sunday through Thursday, 10 to 4.30, free of charge. So come. <laughs> that is a great thing to do. There might be chocolate there. There might be a little bit of chocolate there. <laughs> <laughs> and there's group tours, right? For groups of over 10? Yeah, absolutely. Groups over 10. Uh, you can go on our website um, or um, give us a call as well. Book a tour. Debbie, do you have any more chocolate travels coming up? Every travel is chocolate related. <laughs> Every day is you chocolate really do related. Have the best job. I do. <laughs> and um, there are other projects pending. Um, and one of them is a possible children's book. Um, tentatively, we're calling it the Boston Chocolate Party. I reached out to a, uh, an award winning chocolate story writer, children's writer. Um, is that like the kid version of the Boston Tea Party? <laughs> yeah, but it's a story about chocolate, yes. Aaron Lopez, and we're hoping that that will nice. move forward. Um, and yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, well, thank you both so much for coming on the show. It was, thank you, it was a delight and it's really just, it's such a pleasurable read and I so enjoyed uh, going to the museum and seeing the exhibit. So thank you all for listening. Um, hopefully you figured out that we have a new time. It's at 6.30 p.m. 
Uh, you can check us out live every Wednesday at 6.30 for this season. And otherwise, you can listen to us on iTunes as a podcast, on Stitcher as a podcast, and always on heritageradionetwork.org. See you next time. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.